Somebody must know something out there. More than one person will know who it was. It's somebody we know, for sure. I reckon she knew her killer. I really do, eh? Saturday, September 13, 1980, was the last day Annette Deverell was seen alive. After a night out dancing with friends, the likeable and fun 19-year-old from the West Australian seaside town of Mandra vanished without a trace. Two years later, Annette's remains were found in bushland, about a 40-minute drive out of town. Was her fractured skull evidence of brutal murder or a terrible accident? Whoever left Annette in the bush appeared to have made no attempt to bury her body. A burnt, unlicensed, single-barrel shotgun was found nearby. Her remains were left to decay and were scattered through the bush by wild pigs. A cold, cruel end to her short life. After almost four decades of heartbreak, Annette's mother still can't shake the suspicion that someone in her town knows something. The cash rewards on offer for 11 other cold cases in Western Australia were increased in October 2018. Some are worth as much as $250,000 to anyone who can provide information, but not Annette Deverell's cold case. Astonishingly, there is no advertised reward for information on the teenager's unsolved death, nothing to encourage people to come forward with information. And there has never been a coronial inquest into her murder. An inquest can help determine the cause of death and the circumstances. For nearly 40 years, Annette's family and friends have lived with the pain of not knowing what happened to her that Saturday night in September 1980. Annette Deverell would have turned 58 this year. To her three brothers and heartbroken mother, she will always be the 19-year-old sister and daughter taken from them in the cruelest of circumstances. They're a family desperate for answers. You'd never get over the losing your daughter, ever. Annette is a four-part series exploring a tragic mystery that has haunted one typical Australian seaside town for decades. It was always a mystery, you know, what happened to her. Always a mystery. My name's Carla Hildebrandt. I'm a journalist at the Mandra Mail, Mandra's local newspaper. I've spent a year examining the case of local girl Annette Deverell. Some people I've spoken to in researching this story have warned me to leave it alone or decline to say what they know or urge me to not reopen old wounds. But the story of Annette is important. Here was a young woman with family and friends who loved her. She had a life of possibilities ahead of her until that fateful night in 1980. Annette deserves justice. She and her family deserve the truth. In this series, we will ask, who was Annette Deverell? What happened that night in Mandra, where she bought some smokes from the corner shop, drank and danced with friends in the pub, before disappearing from outside the post office, just up the street? We'll piece together the clues and hear from some of those friends. 
we will look at the problems police investigators faced at the time and hear how the mystery and suspicion surrounding Annette's death shook Mandra in the 1980s and continues to haunt the town today. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, Western Australia was known for its pristine beaches and its relaxed lifestyle. Mandra was all of this and more. It was a small, untouched gem, hiding 70 kilometres south of Perth with a population of only 12,000 people. The coastal fishing town was so small, you could practically walk everywhere. There were no freeways or railway line, just one main road in and out of town. In fact, it wasn't even a town at this point, receiving that status seven years later. Mandra in those days had only two primary schools, one high school and one hospital. Everyone knew everyone. And everyone knew Annette Deverell. She lived with her family at 31 Third Avenue. Back then, Third Avenue was on the outskirts of Mandra. Her family's house was surrounded by bush. And that's exactly the sort of thing people were looking for when they moved from Perth to Mandra. A carefree lifestyle and dirt-cheap beachfront homes. There was also steady employment opportunities in the area after the Pinjarra Alumina Refinery was established by Alcoa in 1974. Dubbed the good old days by Mandra locals, the late 70s and early 80s was a carefree time. Residents took advantage of the estuary and beach, spending most of their days swimming, fishing, crabbing or prawning, and their nights at places like the outdoor cinema, the Mandra Little Theatre. It was good, good times. And that's what the crowds, that's what Annette and all that, and all the boys, that's what we done. We just partied on weekends and worked during the week. And this was Mandra back in those days. Go prawning, big feeds of prawns, it was a lot easier. It's a good place back then. Don't get prawns anymore. Not even decent crabs anymore. The pubs back then were filled with cigarette smoke and they were packed with laughter, dancing and live music, even in sleepy little Mandra. Annette and her friends liked to go out dancing. Annette wasn't a big drinker, but she was very social and had a close group of friends. Back in those days, before mobile phones and text messages and Facebook and Snapchat, you didn't even have to phone your friends before a night out. You just headed into town and you'd be sure to bump into someone or everyone you knew. It was spring and particularly cold that Saturday evening, with rain and blustery winds. In fact, the Peel Harvey estuary was closed for boating the following morning because of dangerous heavy swells. Annette's mother, Margaret Carver, remembers the night well. Annette had asked her mum to drive her into town so she could buy some cigarettes. Margaret dropped Annette near the Boathouse Tavern on Pinjara Road, the main street of Mandra, about 8pm. She said that she'd get a lift home with some of her friends because she had a great big circle of friends, but she never came back. Not at all. Annette was wearing black jeans and a long-sleeved white cotton button-up top over a white blouse. She was carrying a black handbag. Over the next three and a half hours, Annette saw a handful of friends and danced with them to live music. She went into the Boathouse Tavern for about half an hour with friend Wendy Ashworth before going to the Brighton Hotel about 300 metres down the road. Annette's friend Barbara Kalesia says she and her partner Horry had a drink with Annette at the hotel that night. 
we just saw at the uh, boathouse. Um, then me and Hori walked across from the boathouse to the Brighton, and we were in the where the beer garden was. Well, it's all different now, but there was a beer garden and then the bar. We were standing there having a drink, and that's when she walked in and just had a drink with us. And then she said she's going to get a smokes and go home. And she took off waving. That was it. That was the last I saw of her. A short time later, Annette was spotted making a small purchase from the Mandra Corner shop, 50 metres from the Brighton. The shop used to stand on the corner of Pinjarra Road and Mandra Terrace. Today it's the Bridge Garden Bar and Restaurant. She was also seen making a call at a phone box, a two-minute walk down Pinjarra Road outside the Mandra Post Office. Who Annette called, or tried to call that night, remains a mystery. She was spotted again waiting outside the corner shop. Police at the time said she could have been waiting for a lift from a friend, but the cold wind and rain saw her retreat back inside the Brighton Hotel before leaving by herself about 11pm. At 11.20pm, Annette was again seen outside the post office, but this time she was talking to a young man described by police as a surfy-type blonde. He was about the same age as Annette, or slightly older. At the time, police had said this was a firm sighting, but they didn't say who saw them together. Annette was sitting on a low wall and he was standing over her. She had her arms crossed and looked cold. This man has never been identified. Police say Annette was seen alone at the same spot 10 minutes later. The next sighting could be crucial to the case. It has puzzled investigators and plays a big part in a theory we will detail later in this episode. A theory proposed by family, friends and investigators that Annette knew her killer. Retired detective Jeff Beeman, who reopened the case in 1999, said Annette was spotted in the back of a dark-coloured 1970s panel van, possibly a Holden, with at least two other people. She's reported to have waved to a friend from the car and seemed to know the group she was with. If it's true, this is the last time anyone saw Annette alive. Annette's friend Steve Anderson recalls that night as a pretty typical Saturday out in Mandra, with young people meeting up and moving between the town's pubs, the Boathouse, the Brighton and the Peninsula Hotel. My recollection of it was we'd done the, the, the Boathouse Tavern, we'd walked to the Brighton, we ended up somewhere between the Brighton and the Pen, somewhere people start saying, where's Annette? Has anyone seen Annette? And I'm... I'm not sure exactly when she went missing, but somewhere along the course of that, she was with everyone and then she wasn't anymore. And I don't know what happened to her. Have you seen Annette? Have you seen Annette? That's all I can remember of it. Where was she? Where is she? She hasn't shown up where she, she should be here, you know. Okay. Yeah, that's all I remember. Friend Charlene Anderson says the night seems blurry nearly 40 years on. But bar hopping like Annette did on that night was not uncommon. Like we used to always walk from the Brighton at Boathouse to the Brighton. Groups of us. All of us. It was never a strange thing. Annette's friend John McCarthy believes he saw Annette walking home by herself when he was driving home from the pub. I'm confident that we went to the Brighton Hotel and we saw Annette 
and a few other people in the pub and then we decided to leave and as we're going past the RSL hall, as we're going up the hill there, I saw, I thought it was Annette walking on the side of the road and I said, do you think that's Annette? We'll stop and give her a lift and she said she won't want to lift any ride um, and we kept going. I think she waved to us. And she was by herself? Yes, definitely by herself. I half expected one of her friends to be coming through and picking her up. And then afterwards, when I've heard that they reckon they saw her down the post, I thought, well, maybe she might have done a U-turn and gone back to town. Maybe she got picked up and went back to town, or maybe someone's telling Porky's down the other end of the street. Annette didn't come home that night, or the next day. She was reported missing by her mother on Monday, September 15, at 10pm. For her family, it was the beginning of an unending nightmare. I knew something was definitely wrong with her because it wasn't, it was all out of character for Annette, yeah. And I know for sure she wouldn't have got, well, she wouldn't accept a lift from any stranger. She was always taught not to get in, you know, into any cars and things like that. And I know she wouldn't, unless she was taken by force. Annette's friend Steve Anderson remembers the shock of her disappearance reverberating around the community. No one suspected, you know, abduction, murder at the time it was missing. Okay, why, where, something's not adding up here, a few days speculation, then just the total disappearance that went on for weeks, you know, the disbelief, that went on for a long time. For me and the crowd that I knew, I was like, wow, she's just gone, you know? So that was, yeah, it's just disbelief. As the days passed and it became more and more likely that something sinister had happened, murder was the word on everyone's lips. Friend Barbara Kalisha says the weeks that followed were overwhelming. Oh, you just heard so many different stories, you know, like, and the cops coming around to me, like, I saw her that night, yeah, but where she, what happened after I waved, I can still see her walking down the beer garden waving to me. That's always been in my head. I've always seen Annette waving, see you later, kind of, and I thought, oh, yeah. You know, like, all the different stories you hear, but I just wish that some of the stories that come out were true and you could find the murderer. So did you think initially that she had been murdered? No. No. I didn't, didn't even think of that at all. But I, and I also didn't think she'd run away from home. So I think we're all baffled what happened with Annette. John McCourt is now the Chief Executive Officer of the WARSL, but in 1980, he was a journalist at the Coastal District Times newspaper. He remembers Annette's disappearance and the effect it had on the townsfolk of Mandra. That story was the story of the week, story of the month, story of the year. He says Annette was the only topic of conversation at the Brighton Hotel, especially given it was the last place Annette had danced with her friends. Well, everyone went there. I mean, everyone went there, businessmen, Businesswoman, uh, just general workers after work, journos, coppers, whatever. It was the social centre of Mandra. 
and uh, it put the spooks uh, up Mandra in those years horrible horrible I remember the center point of conversation you know Friday night after work was that Tracy Hickman who was a year younger than Annette at school remembers her disappearance changing the feel of the idyllic coastal town it was sort of like not exciting that but it was just such an amazing event to have happened then something like that to happen in your little town which back then Mandra was a little and Pinjarra were both quite small towns and uh, it was just um, unbelievable um, hot, hot topic of conversation of course you know everyone was talking about it everyone was um, wondering about it so it was um, it certainly stirred the pot at the time nothing else like that had ever happened in my lifetime anyway living in Mandra so it did it, I think it had a very profound effect on a lot of people back then girls were walking around the street at night it was considered fairly safe you know but that just changed everything and uh, it, it turned a, a, a sleepy little town into a dangerous place False sightings of Annette across Western Australia in towns like Fremantle and Geraldton in the weeks following her disappearance gave Margaret Carver some hope that her daughter was still alive. In those agonising months before Annette's remains were discovered, Margaret admits she became suspicious of people, wondering whether someone she'd met in the street or at the shops had been involved in her daughter's disappearance. In her mind, she played out all the possible outcomes of that September night in an endless, agonising loop. I used to just walk around looking at everybody. I wonder if that's... You just didn't know who who done it. You used to think, stand beside someone, I wonder if he was the one that done it. I wonder if he was, or who knows. Might have been more than one involved in it. Almost two excruciating years later, Margaret got the call she was waiting for, the call she was dreading. On the 4th of July 1982, two teenagers riding motorbikes in the bushes near the neighbouring town of Pinjarra stumbled across what appeared to be human remains next to a log in a burnt-out section of forest. The body appeared to have been dumped just off Scarp Road, behind the Alcoa Illumina refinery. The boys, aged 16 and 17, brought their grisly discovery into the police station at Pinjarra. It was a human skull, a lower jawbone and two other small bones. There was also a ring which would later be confirmed as Annette's. A burnt, unlicensed single barrel shotgun was found by police when they searched the area. No trace of clothing was ever found at the scene. Margaret remembers the call from police. When they found these trial bike riders found her, actual, they found her skull and they took it to the police. I was caught in that night to Pinjarra and they said they believed it to be Annette and they had a little ring and they said, is that Annette's ring? Well, I said, I can't really tell because it's burnt but it's about the same size as a finger. But I said, if you can pull that stone out and have a look under and if it's blue, it's definitely hers, which it was, but they had to identify her by her teeth. In one way, the discovery provided Margaret and her family with some relief, some closure. But in another, it was just the beginning of a long, dark and painful journey, one filled with sleepless nights as she wondered who had killed her only daughter. 
A month after that horrific discovery in the forest, a small memorial service for Annette Deverell was held at the Mandra Anglican Church. Friends and family comforted each other that day. The police were also there. A lot of her young friends turned up and I think the police were there just watching and I suppose if anything strange was going to go on. Annette Deverell doesn't have a gravesite in Mandra. Margaret, who still lives in the town, keeps her daughter's ashes close by in her home. Walking into Margaret's home, the love she still holds for Annette is obvious. The place is filled with pictures of her as a beautiful, smiling baby, a cheeky little girl and as a smirking teenager. A newspaper tribute from the time shows the pain Margaret felt in those dark days after her daughter's remains were found, and it's pain she's felt every day since. Flowers and leaves may wither, the evening sun may set, but the hearts that love you dearly are the ones that never forget. Always gentle, loving and kind, what beautiful memories you left behind. We cannot bring back those happy days when we were all together, but cherished memories of your smiling face and loving ways will stay with us forever. Our hearts still ache with sadness, our secret tears will flow, for what it meant to lose you, no one will ever know. Your loving mother, Malcolm, Michael and Jason. Margaret often thinks of what her daughter would have become. She's still the same to me as I can remember her, like as she was when she was, yeah, when she was alive. Yeah, I often wonder now what would she be like. She'd have children all seventeen or eighteen, rather. Yeah, no life. Mm. Almost forty years later, and the death of Annette Deverell remains a mystery to Annette's family and to police. Margaret says her sons, Michael, Malcolm and Jason, still show the emotional scars of losing their sister the way they did. Oh, terrible though, really. Well, still are. They feel it every, you know, when her anniversary comes up of her birthday and Christmas is always, Annette's not here. It's so sad, but... They still feel it like I do. Margaret's desperate to know what happened that cold and rainy Saturday night in September 1980. She's convinced that someone knows something. Her voice and her face show the frustration, the suspicion and the deep sadness that has darkened her life for four decades. I'm at that point, I would like to know who done it and why. Her body was found on that, but it would put closure to the case. And I'd feel a lot happier to try and live with her. But you'd never get over the losing your daughter, ever. Yeah. But I'd like to see somebody charged for her murder. Somebody must know something out there or feeling horrible guilty if they got any conscience, you'd think they'd come forward, wouldn't you? But probably take it to their grave with them, whoever it is. Some of her friends must know something that, because there was a group of them in, well, she was in the Brighton Hotel with some of her friends, they must know something. The person or people who killed Annette 
or who know how she died and how her body ended up in the bush behind the refinery. They could be dead by now, or they could still be living in or around Mandra, going about their life as if nothing ever happened. A witness or someone who was out in Mandra that Saturday night might have information that they're too frightened to share. They could have clues that could help lead police to the truth. There's always hope, former journalist John McCourt says. Things about cold cases is that they can still be solved because people know people and know what they may have done and the individual concerned or the individuals concerned have a conscience. Most of those cowardly take that to the grave, others fess up. So the role of journalists is critical often in, uh, in cases where that are unsolved, and especially cold cases, because just jogging the memory can sometimes turn wonders. Retired detective Jeff Beeman is certain that someone who's still alive holds the key to unlocking the mystery. More than one person will know what's happening. More than one person will know who it was. What would you say to those people in the community? No, now they, they, they really should look at themselves and say... You know, we can, we can help, you know, A, look at the family. Mum's still sitting there, you know, she could be able to get on with her life again, you know. And he's got brothers, you know, and even her old friends still think about it. Got photos of her sitting there, you know. They all want to know, and it's these people, someone's got that information in their head and either too frightened or think it's not my problem. But it is, really. They should look at their own family and say, how would I feel if my sister or my daughter, or my granddaughter now. You know, these people are in their fifth, late 50s now. How would they feel if it happened to them? How would they be able to get on with the life? You know, that's what I, I, I couldn't. And I still think about it now for that reason. You know, I've got family. You know, you've got children, grandchildren. I've got a great-grandchild, you know. You think, geez, I'd be absolutely searching the streets if they didn't come home at night, you know. So I don't know how people can sit there and not do anything. Jeff Beeman believes Annette Deverell knew the person or people involved in her death. So do her mother Margaret and her friend Barbara Kalisha. So does former Mandra journalist John McCourt. My interview with her mother was that she would never get into a vehicle with a person they didn't know. So that may mean that she got into a vehicle with people she didn't know. And then somehow after that she came to her demise. I always say, whoever's done it, it could have been an accident that they accidentally killed her and they've panicked, I don't know. But it's somebody we know, for sure. There's no doubt she would have known, she wouldn't have gotten that car. You know, she would have been with, you know, but then she's obviously got there and, and someone, you know, things are not right. But I reckon, it's, I reckon she knew her killer, I really do, eh? This is just the beginning of the story of Annette. In the next episode, we will get to know Annette Deverell. For that to have happened to anyone, but for her, I suppose people thought that Annette was a little bit indestructible, you know, because she was so so tough and, you know, so outright and all the rest of it. And you wouldn't have expected something like that to happen to her. Her childhood growing up in Mandra, her family life, her school days. Well, well kind of like the Mandra... Teenage in crowd, you know. The struggles and fun times of her teenage years. We all went out with each other. 
Sounds like Bold and the Beautiful or something, doesn't it? And the deep joy and secret heartbreak of the beautiful baby girl she gave birth to, then gave up for adoption three years before her death. But I didn't know for a long time. I didn't know she was pregnant. She was, you know, so young and scared. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Annette. We hope this series will spark someone's memory or encourage witnesses with crucial information to finally come forward about what really happened that Saturday night in Mandra in 1980. If you have information that could help police solve this case, contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. You can contact me, Carla Hildebrandt, by emailing annettepodcast at gmail.com and you can remain anonymous if you wish.